what EMS did for the fire service 30 years ago, mobile integrated healthcare and community paramedicine are going to do for the fire service for the next 20 years. Enchanted Sky Media. 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 Code 3, the podcast for firefighters. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thanks for being with me again. The biggest buzzwords in EMS today are community paramedicine. Its objective is to provide more effective and efficient medical services at a lower cost. Community paramedicine lets paramedics work outside their traditional emergency response roles. That means they drive more appropriate use of hospital and EMS resources. And it may also allow firefighter paramedics to concentrate on more urgent calls. Here to explain more about community paramedicine is Matt Zavodsky. Matt is the Public Affairs Director at MedStar Mobile Healthcare, the EMS provider for Fort Worth and 14 other cities in North Texas. He has over three decades experience in EMS, and he's a frequent speaker at national conferences. Matt Zavodsky, thanks for joining me on Code 3 today. Scott, it is an honor, sir. Thank you for the invitation. You guys at MedStar have had a community paramedicine program for years now, haven't you? We have. We've been running various components of a mobile integrated healthcare strategy or an MIH strategy, including community paramedicine, since 2009. So, in the broad sense, what does this program do differently than standard firefighter paramedic responses? I think the main difference is that we are working very diligently with our community partners and our healthcare partners to essentially prevent unnecessary 911 calls. So that could run from the whole gamut of either addressing high utilizers or what often we refer to in in the business as frequent flyers, whether those frequent flyers are frequent 911 users or frequent emergency department users even without calling 911. It involves using a nurse triage program in our 911 center to help navigate callers with low acuity medical complaints to appropriate resources that might be different than an ambulance to the emergency room. It's things like preventing readmissions in patients who have a high risk for readmissions to the hospital for which the hospitals and other folks might be financially penalized for. It involves working with hospice and home health agencies to make sure that patients that they have on their service um, don't unnecessarily go to an emergency department. Uh, It really runs the entire continuum of care uh, in the healthcare system and using the emergency response system and even in some cases the non-emergency response system using specially trained paramedics who might not be in an ambulance, who might be in first response units or other types of quick response vehicles to do those uh, home visits to prevent some of those unnecessary 911 calls or redirect patients who do call 911 to alternate resources. And how exactly does this work? For example, how many people go out and what qualifications do they have? 
So at MedStar, you know, we are a governmental agency. So much like many of your listeners uh, who may work for fire agencies or other organizations, MedStar is a, is a public utility model. So it's a public authority. And we have 11 specially trained paramedics who do both the proactive management of patients and also the 911 urgent response for patients who might be enrolled in some of our programs who activate the 911 system to help uh, navigate those patients to the most appropriate care level. All of those paramedics um, have received specially tra- special training in community paramedicine and are certified um, by the International Board of Specialty Certification, IBSC, as certified community paramedics. So some of them may also have some additional training and certification as critical care paramedics, um, but they do receive very specialized training to be able to assess, treat, and manage these types of patients. Over in Mesa, Arizona, they've been using community paramedicine to relieve pressure from fire responses on EMS calls. Is that a common way to do this? It's one of the ways to do it. So when we talk about the goals and the objectives of an MIH strategy for a fire agency or for any agency, it's to become more integrated with the rest of the healthcare system. Most fire agencies have responses that are emergency medical or medical in nature. In fact, in some departments, that could represent 70 or 80% of the call volume. So by integrating the department with the rest of the healthcare system meets several goals that the employees, the leadership of those departments might want to achieve. First is adding more value to the community. So if you want to talk about doing more community-based activities, and community paramedicine is a great opportunity to do that because oftentimes the elected officials and the public perceive that as a huge value um, to the community. Second, many of the mobile integrated healthcare programs, whether it be, again, that nurse triage program or community paramedicine or alternate uh, ambulance destinations, are funded by partners in the healthcare system that either traditionally pay for ambulance service or who might not traditionally pay for ambulance service um, to really pay for improving patient outcomes while reducing the spend for that healthcare system. Mesa funded their program with a grant and then it ran out. And so I'm wondering how hard is this community paramedicine to sell to healthcare providers as something that they'd like to fund? And, you know, Scott, that is the number one most commonly asked question is the financial sustainability of a mobile integrated healthcare strategy, whether that be community paramedicine or some other part of an MIH strategy. Um, what we have found is that the departments that go into this arena, this new service line, collaboratively with the potential funders, whether that be hospitals, even physician practices, payers for certain, have found great success in making these programs funded um, by those payers. In our system at, at, the, uh, at MedStar here in Fort Worth, every single patient that gets enrolled in our mobile integrated healthcare program comes with a payer source. Someone has paid to have that patient either referred into the program 
or what we're seeing more now, we can explore this later in more detail if you like, third-party payers are willing to pay us differently to manage patient navigation as opposed to just transporting them to the hospital. And since you're talking about Mesa, the fire departments out in Arizona have done an incredible job in partnering with, for example, Arizona Medicaid, who have um, gotten funding for treat and refer programs. So in Arizona, the, the Arizona Medicaid program pays fire departments and other agencies for a response assessment, in, in many cases some type of treatment, and referral. So the Medicaid office has opted to pay for non-transport services, much like we're seeing now Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield is beginning to pay for an ambulance response without transport. So if you go into this with a collaborative spirit, and identify the potential funders that might be willing to fund it. Ask them what's valuable to them. How would you be able to demonstrate value to them to have it sustainable economically long term? And then design your program to achieve the outcomes that those payers want to pay for. You'll make it sustainable. Which leads to my next question. I have heard that some insurance providers give them, give various agencies a hard time about paying for community paramedicine treatment. Do you find that to be true in most cases at first? That's a great question again, Scott. And the reality is that the payers have to perceive value from the service that you're going to provide. At MedStar, it took us about three years to generate enough data to prove to the third-party payers in our community that our programs can do three key things. One, not kill anyone. So yes, they, they are innovative programs. Yes, they keep people out of the hospital. And oh, by the way, no adverse outcomes. And you know, that's always a plus, yeah. Yep, so you have to be able to prove that. Second, you have to improve the patient's experience of care because the, the managed care organizations, the hospitals, everybody in the healthcare system is very well aware of the benefit, both economically and otherwise, of having the patients happy. So if you can, can prove that your programs enhance the patient's experience of care, then that's a second big win for the payers and will help convince them to pay it. And then third, you have to demonstrate a reduced cost, a reduced spend for that particular stakeholder. So if it's a third-party insurance company, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aetna, Cigna, whoever it is, you have to be able to prove to them that you've reduced high-cost emergency department visits, high-cost hospital admissions, high-cost ambulance transports, um, primarily through reduced utilization. So if you can demonstrate those three things, the payers will pay, and they are paying us, and they're paying other organizations to do it. Now, the big question, Mark, is Medicare. Medicare has yet, aside from the six uh, healthcare innovation award grants that they've issued for EMS providers to do community paramedicine or MIH, they have not made the payment policy change to pay for community paramedicine. Um, and quite frankly, a lot of that is because in order to change that payment policy, it takes an act of Congress, literally. <laughs> to change the Medicare benefit to include community paramedicine. However, and that this is a huge however, Medicaid can change much more quickly. In fact, Health Affairs, one of the major publications for health policy, 
announcement uh, indicated recently in a, a feature article in a feature journal that they published that Medicaid is one of the most innovative payers in healthcare, and you see in many states Medicaid now paying for community prior medicine. Arizona, we just talked about Nevada, Ohio. Minnesota, Maine, Idaho, all of these states have changed their state policy to allow Medicaid to pay for community health worker, I'm sorry, community paramedicine. Um, what we've seen here uh, in Fort Worth is that the third party payers have finally woken up and said, yes, we are willing to pay for EMS differently than we have in the past because of those three things that we know you've been able to prove that bring value to that payer. So it sounds like a win-win, which leaves just one component, and that's the paramedics themselves. Is it difficult to find paramedics who want to take on this kind of a role? I mean, it's different than, you know, your typical paramedic job. It is substantially different. Um, you know, most paramedics and even EMTs that are working um, in the fire service or, or other EMS-based organizations um, have grown up doing waiting around for a 911 call or, or other type of call to respond to. This role is much different because you are working with people, working with patients over time, could be, you know, a week or two or a month or even three months to work with them to get them healthier, help them not have to go to the emergency department, use their primary care network more effectively. So what we have found is that the paramedics who have been in EMS for, you know, three, four or five years have realized that, you know, the 20 minute interaction that we have with our patients or the 30 minute interaction that we have with, with our patients is not as rewarding as they would have thought. People who came into EMS or even EMS-based fire services thinking that every call they respond to is going to be an emergency call quickly realized that really a very small part or a very small percentage of the calls that we respond to are really emergencies. And they like the idea of taking on a new and expanded role. When we first started our program back in 2009 and 2010, we had to really convince some of our seasoned paramedics to change from just working on the ambulance to doing this you know, mobile healthcare program. But after the first year or two, and the rest of the paramedics in our organization began to see what these community paramedics were doing, the impact that they were having on patients. We now have a waiting list of paramedics that want to become, in our community, community paramedics because they want to do more for patients than just spend 30 minutes with them um, on low-acuity 911 calls. And finally, an obvious question, but I'll go ahead and ask it. Does this sort of program relieve some of the pressure off the fire EMS system so that they can be ready for more emergent calls? Absolutely, Scott. And that was one of the reasons why we started doing this back in 2009, because we wanted to reduce the number of calls that we were responding to in the field for really three reasons. And you indicated one of them, be more available to respond to the higher acuity calls without having to add more staff. Secondly, we wanted to um, show that we could make a, a bigger difference in the community and build that community trust. And third, we wanted to enhance some satisfaction with our workforce so that they weren't responding to these high utilizers, they weren't responding to these low acuity calls, so that the calls that they were going on were a little bit more high acuity. Now, we will never likely in any uh, organization or any city across the country be able to actually reduce 
the call volume year over year because we've got a growing population in this country. We've got an aging population in this country, but we can certainly slow the growth of the call volume. And if you do it right, as we've talked about throughout this podcast, and you get funded to do something different, then you won't take an economic hit by reducing the number of ambulance trips that you're actually responding to or doing. And it's it, when you said it earlier, you were spot on, that it really becomes a win-win for the patient, for the agency, and for the payers. It sounds like it is a win-win, and when done correctly, it's definitely an advantage. And, and Scott, here's the reality, I think, for a lot of your listeners. 30, 40 years ago, the fire service getting into EMS was a huge culture shift. But for many fire service leaders, they realized that the fire department's entry into emergency medical services saved the fire industry. It saved the fire career. It saved jobs because now they're responding to medical calls. There are many people both within and without the fire service EMS industry that believe that what EMS did for the fire service 30 years ago Mobile integrated healthcare and community paramedicine are going to do for the fire service for the next 20 years um, because it, they're happening all over the country. And in some cases, there are communities that might have a municipal or a county-based fire agency that is not doing mobile integrated healthcare, but the private ambulance provider or the city ambulance provider is doing it. And our philosophy has always been, if someone's going to get paid to reduce my call volume, well, I want it to be me. So the fire service has built-in community trust, has built-in um, infrastructure, has, has a lot of capacity to be able to do this kind of work, and it's a very logical fit um, to bring more value to your local community. All right, Matt Zavodsky, thanks for being with us today on Code 3. Thank you very much, Scott. And there are links to more information about community paramedicine on our website, code3podcast.com slash CP. Check him out. Now here's Holly. Thanks, Scott. If you haven't become a patron of Code 3 yet, now's your chance. All you do is click on the Patreon link on our website, Code3Podcast.com. You can make a monthly pledge to support the podcast. We want to make this the best show we can, but we need you to join us. What's Code 3 worth to you? A dollar a month? Five? Ten? Maybe more. And when you pledge, we have some nice rewards for you. So don't wait. Do it today. And become a patron of Code 3 right now. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Orr, and until next time, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.